0: Before we enter into the Word of God this morning from this amazing passage from Philippians 1, you've, you've already gotten to see in the sacrament of baptism how deep and how wide is the love of God for His people. You've already seen it. You've already seen it. And as we see that beautiful portrait of His grace presented before us in the baptism of Amara, we now have the privilege to lean into His love as he shows it in glorious array from this marvelous passage. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, and then also 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. This is God's word. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So now, faith, hope, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we would now ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to come and open up this, your word to us. And in opening up this, your word to us, we would ask that you would transform our lives by the power of the gospel. That you would show us your love. And your love would change everything about who we are. The direction of our lives and ultimately what it is that we become. So come now, and move among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you canvas the Apostle Paul's letters, you will find him preaching and teaching. You will find him writing. And as you see here in Philippians 1, you will find him praying toward the growth of God's people in grace. It's a leading priority that you find in all of the writings of the Apostle Paul. He wants to see God's people growing up and maturing in grace. It's a work that gave him great joy as he saw hearts and lives transformed before him through the ministry of the Word And then it was also a ministry that caused him great heartache, as he saw many not progress as they ought, and many veer away and even fall away from the faith. On the front of your bulletin, you'll find that little phrase, till Christ is formed in you. That's a quote from Galatians chapter 4, an oft-mentioned quote in this subject of growing in grace, of sanctification of becoming more like Christ, what is sometimes called the process of Christian formation, this particular verse is often used. till Christ is formed in you. Now it's just a portion of Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. The earlier part says, my little children whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until... Christ is formed in you. Now the reason I want to note that is Paul's actually very concerned about the church at Galatia as he writes those words in Galatians 4 because they veered off into false teaching. He's seen some make shipwreck of their faith and he now is saying I'm anguishing again to bring forth as it were new birth in you until I see Christ formed in you. He's under spiritual travail He's a man who's experiencing the pain and the heartache of seeing and laboring for the spiritual growth of those in whom he is shepherding, those in whom he loves. It's the same kind of thing that we hear from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why do I warn? Why do I teach? Why do I do this? that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. And then notice the next verse. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, that he powerfully works within me. You see, this was the Apostle Paul's heart cry. That we would be a people who are formed in Christ, that we would be a people who would mature in Christ, that one day he might present us Complete in Christ. That's what he wants to see. He's got his eyes set on that aim, upon that objective. That's the horizon of discipleship for the Apostle Paul. And I want you here at Cornerstone to know that it's the horizon of your elders for you. We enter into the language of the Apostle Paul. Till Christ be formed at you. That you might be presented Complete in Christ on the day of his return. That's why we labor. That's why we shepherd. That's why we teach. All the platforms of our ministry are submitted to that ultimate aim and to that purpose. We want to see Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15. Every single one of us grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. This is why eight months ago. The elders pulled together what we called an educational task force. It was made up of men and women within this congregation who are showing and displaying the evidences of maturity and wisdom. It was made up of elders and deacons who were called to shepherd and care for this local congregation. This group asking the question, how is a mature Christian formed? How does that happen? How does that take place? And You might be thinking, well, it's probably a question you should have asked six years ago when you started Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Well, it was a question that we asked six years ago. It's actually a question we ask every week when we form a worship service. It's a question we ask every time we start a Sunday school class. It's a question every time we launch a Bible study. It's a question every time... We orient and organize a fellowship gathering or launch a mission initiative. That questions on the forefront of our minds, will this work to form us into the maturity of who it is that we are called in Christ? Will God use this platform, this means, to achieve that end? But there's an appropriate time for us to stop and pause and ask that at a macro level again, to be continually renewed and afresh. The Lord's grown us by several hundred people The Lord has brought in a variety of different types of people from all ages and stages, from all varying levels of Christian maturity. We have people coming to know Christ. We have people who are early in their Christian life who are growing. We have people who have walked with Christ for 40 and 50 years. How do you continue at the varying levels and the complexity of a local congregation to be sure that you're creating platforms of ministry that serve for the purposes of making all of God's people complete in Christ? How is a mature Christian formed? Now maybe as I ask that question, you, your answer is real simple. <laughs> well, God must do it. It's a great answer. It's an absolutely true answer. It's one that I can assure you we rest in and find incredible comfort and encouragement in that only God is the one who can Bring to completion that which he has begun, Philippians chapter 2. Only God can do that. We can't do that through the machinations of men. But the farmer doesn't look out at his field and say, well, only God can bring the harvest. So I'm going to sit on the front porch and I'm going to enjoy a big long glass of sweet tea and rock in my rocking chair and watch the harvest come in. If he does, he's a fool. He's naive. Because God tells us in the word that he uses means to accomplish that end. He uses the planting. He uses the watering. He uses the fertilizing. He uses the weeding. He uses those means to bring forth the growth. That is how God accomplishes the fruit bearing in his kingdom. And so the question when we're asking how is a mature Christian formed, we're asking what are the conditions that we must strive to create so that growth will be favorable for the Lord to come in and bring change? Here I said that. How do we strive to create conditions or environments where growth would be favorable for God to bring about completion and maturity? How can we, in a sense, give ourselves over to forming spiritual greenhouses so that the seed of the gospel continues to bear fruit that would redound to the glory of God and would ultimately bring forth the maturing of believers? Now, as the task force reflected on that question, several different answers emerged many of which we are going to talk about in the weeks to come and, as a little tease, will be some of the things that we'll present to you in the Sunday school class over the next few weeks together. And it's really important that you hear that information because we believe that we want, that God is calling us to strive, to create, as we've been striving to do, but even in greater measure, environments that will be favorable to the spiritual work of God in the life of the congregation here at Cornerstone. This morning, in the few minutes that we have together, I simply wanted to look at this prayer of the Apostle Paul and highlight one truth that emerged right at the very forefront of the work of the Educational Task Force. One truth that emerged right at the very forefront of the work of the Educational Task Force that kind of helped orient where it is that we're going in this series. And the truth I want to give to you on the front end. The truth is this, spiritual maturity takes place in our lives as we learn to love the right things in the right way. Spiritual maturity begins to take place in our lives as we learn to love the right things in the right way. Now in some senses, we're not going to get past that one sentence over the next four weeks. We're going to talk about what that one sentence means. The dimensions of that one sentence. What does it mean for spiritual maturity to take place in our lives as an exercise of learning to love the right things in the right way? Because I'm going to assume, they don't have been the way that you would have instinctively answered that question. But I'm praying that it will be the way that you would answer the question in the future and the way that we as a congregation might. And so today, from Philippians chapter 1, I want to look at just one point with you. I know. One point with you. I know you would be under the assumption that would be brief. And you're probably correct. We'll see. The point is this. Love is the supreme priority in spiritual growth. Love is the supreme priority in spiritual growth. Now we've already read already in the course of our service. We've read the words from Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus says that the the whole of the commandment is summed up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And what you may not have paid attention to is the little tagline that he put at the end. All of the law and the prophets depend on this. All of it. Everything. Everything that God has ever said to you lands right there. That's what he's saying. He's summarizing the entirety of what it is that we are called to and to be about. All of the prophets and the law, they hang, they depend, they rest on that. That's why I'm Saying to you today that the love is the supreme priority in spiritual growth. Now, if you look at Philippians chapter 1, I think you'll see something surprising. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Paul doesn't say, I pray that your knowledge and wisdom abound more and more with love. Somebody says... He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and wisdom. Now, what he's trying to say is love is what I'm after. Love is what I want to see abound in you. Love is what I want to see continue to bear a harvest in you. The way in which that happens is that you must be supported with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment are the handmaidens of love, they're not the aim, they're not the purpose, they're the means to cultivate, to nurture, to tend the love of our hearts in the direction in which God has called us. Let me just prove this by a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 13, which we've already noted. Let me read a little section from it. Notice what Paul says. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Listen to this. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So now faith, hope, and love abide of these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Listen to this. That you being rooted, grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. Notice, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I want you to know the love of Christ and when you know the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond knowledge that you might be filled, he says, with the fullness of God. Where does that come from? It comes in and through love. One writer speaking on this very matter puts it this way. He says, instead of the rationalists and the intellectuals whose model tends to imply that you are only what it is that you think, Paul here is hinting at a very different conviction. He is saying to us at a more fundamental level, you are what you love. You are what you love. Now, what this implies is that critical thinking and intellect, as important as they are in life, are not the center. Love is. It's not enough to think right. It's not enough to have your theological and doctrinal categories straight. It's essential, it's just not enough. You absolutely must pursue it, but it's not the end. Paul is saying, rather, knowledge and discernment serve the highest, higher purpose, highest purpose of love. Now, in saying that, Paul is not downplaying the importance of the intellect or thinking. He is instead identifying the role of thought. And the limits of thought. The role of thought, he says here, knowledge and discernment. These two words are important that the Apostle Paul pairs them both together. Knowledge, we might clearly distill from this passage, is truth. While discernment is the facility to use that truth wisely, to know how that truth makes a difference on the shape and the direction of your life. That's what discernment is. We've all known smart people who really didn't know how to live very well, right? It's the difference between knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He says, I want you to have knowledge with discernment, with all discernment. It's the language that he used. I want you to know the truth so well that it conducts your life in such a manner as begets more and more love in your heart. But he also wants us to know the limits of this knowledge, let me just appeal to your experience. Do you ever experience a gap between what you know and what you do? Have you ever found that knowledge doesn't immediately change your behavior? Had an impact upon changing your life? Does it sometimes? Yes. Does it all the time? No. I sometimes joke how renewed and inspired we feel on Sunday morning immediately following the service and we are ready to have our lives completely changed forever and then Monday comes and as the work week weighs in, we fall into what we might call the sinful habits and patterns of our lives and we forget what it is that we have just heard, just been reminded of and we constantly have to renew ourselves right in the things that we know Because we're not merely thinking beings. If thinking was equal to transformation, every thought that you had would bring transformation. But it doesn't. The Spirit of the Lord has to come in that truth and he has to bring transformation to your heart or to your loves. Because the loves of your life, the desires of your life are what give the direction to your life. In Paul's prayer, he is saying, as love more and more abounds in us, it will be through the rehearsing of, in word and practice, knowledge and discernment. And as that happens, look at what it is that we learn, verse 10, we learn to approve what is excellent. We learn to approve what is excellent. That word approve literally means to exercise good judgment. We begin to see things better than we once did And thus, we begin to choose the excellent over that which is less than excellent. Now, this happens over the course of our lives, right? There's the young version of you that would have made certain decisions based upon certain assumptions of knowledge, based upon a measure of discernment that more than likely was lacking. And then there's the older version of you that looks back on that younger version of you And realizes that progress has been made and that you are now making choices and seeing things that you didn't want to see. What happened? Knowledge and discernment came through rehearsing, through practice, both in terms of success and failure, and you learned better and better how to approve what is excellent and it guided your choices and your decisions and the direction of your life. Now, here's what's, here's what's going to be marvelous. In 10 years from now, you'll look back at your current self. And you will see all other manner of naivety. <laughs> because that's the nature of the progress. That's how it works. How do we create environments that, acceler- that accelerate and seek to inculcate or nurture that kind of growth? That's the question we're asking. So he says as we make good judgments, as we make right choices, he says the ultimate aim for that is that we would, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, be blameless. We would be without spot. We would be full of righteousness, he says, what to the praise and the glory of God, that we would be able able, in body, mind, heart, and soul to be able to give ourselves fully to the glory and the praise of God, that we would be a glorious picture of what it is he does when he comes and transforms lives. That's what Paul's got his eyes focused on. Now, instead of going any further on that, we'll pick this theme up a little bit next week. I want to just give you two examples from kind of the world, not necessarily religious or spiritual examples, but I want you to see that this is the nature of the way that God has made things and the way in which he's revealing it in the word. And then next week, we'll talk about how our loves are developed or learned, how it is that those, how can we get to those? so that they're shaped better. That's what we're going to talk about next week together. And so I want to give you a negative example, and I want to give you a positive example. I didn't have to look far for the negative example, because it's about me. I was telling a few of our officer trainees on Wednesday night, as we're working through this wonderful book by Francis Schaeffer, True Spirituality, happened to just be reminded of a moment in my youth... At the age of 16, driving from Mississippi out west to Colorado to go skiing for the very first time at Copper Mountain. Some of you will have been to Copper Mountain. You have a picture of what it is that I'm talking about. Now, I had a great desire, i.e. love, to learn skiing. But I'd never done it. So I lacked knowledge and discernment with regards to this desire, but I didn't let that stop me. We got there on that first day, and as they typically recommend to those who have never skied before, there's this thing called ski school. I wasn't going to waste my time in ski school, (laughs) only there for a handful of days. They're going to take me for a whole day. I'm like, no, I'm not going to waste my whole day in ski school. I'm going to figure this out on my own with my friends who will most certainly help me. I got on the lift. I got off to the top of the easiest bunny slope you've ever seen. Children were jumping off and buzzing by me like second nature. Hopeful. I poised myself at the top of that hill. and I pushed off two skis together. Well, this is easy. This is wonderful. I'm glad I didn't waste my time in ski school. Those people, foolish people, wasting their time in ski school, enjoying myself as I begin to edge down this bunny slope until I begin to notice that I'm picking up speed, rapidly. And I have no idea how to stop. My confidence and my joy quickly melted into fear, and I managed quite awkwardly to veer To the right, as to not kill the child that was in front of me. And I crashed into an embankment of snow. Skis fly, poles fly, end up in a nearby wood. And I'm just thankful to be alive. Sometimes our love for God is like this it's like this experience. We have zeal, we have the sense of love, we have the sense of desire, we have the sense of drive. But as we push off down the path of discipleship, we're not aware that we're lacking all kinds of knowledge and all kinds of discernment. And before we know it, we're falling flat on our face. And in the falling of the flat on your face, you learn things. There are all kinds of things I learned in that moment. One of the first things I learned was don't do that again. (laughs) Sometimes we learn by negative example to not do that and learn to do it another way. Pay attention, listen, Gain knowledge. Maybe talk to someone who's done this before. Gain their discernment. Sometimes we get a little knowledge and we get puffed up. Get a little too big for our bridges, as my grandmother would like to say. But we're still very green. Babes in Christ, still consuming milk, not yet really eating solid food. We make our way a little ways, but we stumble a lot because our knowledge is weak and our discernment is unpracticed. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. Solid food is for the mature. Now listen to what he says about this. Who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Did you hear what he just said? He said solid food, the deeper knowledge, is for those who are mature who have trained their sensibilities who's trained their discernments, how? By constant practice, by repetition, we might say by ritual, by habit, that these are the things that over the course of our life form us and give shape to us. As we give to constant practice of discernment, then we begin to be able to gain more knowledge the capacity of our lives begins to increase. Now that's a negative example. Let me give me a positive example. I heard it yesterday on the radio. It's an interva- interview with Dallas Cowboys quarterback Tony Romo. Preseason is off, and so now we're beginning to hear from our football players a little bit more. The interview centered around Tony Romo's work ethic. And how is it that he gets ready for the game? I want you to hear how he gets ready for the game. And I want you to hear about what drives him to get ready for the game. He says, it's love for the game of football that has made me a lifelong student of the game. His love, abounding more and more, has driven him to gain more knowledge, to gain more discernment. And as he's gained more knowledge and discernment, he's increasing his love and he's increasing his facility, his ability in the thing that he loves. Now, notice how he does this. I prepare, as many quarterbacks do, reading over the playbook, listening to coaches, watching hours and hours of film knowledge. During practice, I walk through countless numbers of repetitions, learning from my mistakes from the week before and getting ready for what's coming my way this week. Discernment, practicing by constant repetition. By the time I step on the field for game day, I'm ready to spot the defensive schemes, to make good decisions by what it is that they're putting before me and put my team in the best possible place to win. He is absolutely describing Paul's instruction in Philippians 1, 9 through 10 in the worldly context. By acknowledging that his love for something gives him a desire to know it better his practice in the knowledge grows discernment which gives him the wisdom as he gets under center to look out and approve what is excellent to know the scheme to know how they're going after him and to play to their weaknesses and know how to put his team in the best possible position to win now in that form Remo is simply communicating to us what is the routine or the rhythm or the pattern that must be in our own spiritual lives to continue to cultivate a love for Christ and a willingness to pursue him until we are made entirely like him. That's the pattern. That's the supreme priority. This love and this pattern begins the process by which the spirit forms us and shapes us into the people that we become. In that interview, Romo noted that as new quarterbacks come in and as he has had several who've worked alongside him there with the Dallas Cowboys, they come in and they just see a cover three in terms of the defensive scheme. But I know there are multiple cover threes. And I know how this particular team runs the cover three. And I know which player is going to make what shift on that cover three. And they, not yet having the knowledge or the practice of discernment, can't approve, can't see, and thus can't react to what it is that's taking place on the field. When you're sitting with your Bible, and you're reading, and you're praying, and you're in worship, and you're in fellowship, And you're working through the means of grace. You know what you're doing? You're reading the playbook. You're watching film. You're listening to the coaches. You're going through the reps so that when you hit the sidewalk, when you walk in the door at home, when you walk in the door at work, when you engage with the challenges that are in front of you, you can see them for what they are. You can make good judgments, make good decisions. That ultimately give the direction of your life unto the praise and the glory of Christ. That's what we're seeking here at Cornerstone. Because Tony Romo's days in football are going to end. It's not the ultimate prize. And even if it was the ultimate prize, it won't satisfy in the way the ultimate prize of Christ will. Don't settle for temporal aims letting them substitute for eternal glory. Instead, dream bigger than you are. Dream much bigger than you've ever dreamed. Imagine a life full of glory, of righteousness and of joy, untainted by sin, with the face of the Lord Jesus Christ filling the full compass of your mind's eye living deeper and fuller and more glorious than you've ever known before, as that takes over your heart, you start practicing to experience that here a little bit more. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, as you renew us in the word of your grace, we ask that you would indeed give shape and form to our loves. And that you might use the means of knowledge and discernment to grow us up, that we might approve what is excellent, be blameless, filled with righteousness, ready for the day of Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Only you can do this, but we must pursue it. Give us the love of Christ that we might seek you.